Why is theft so upsetting? Uh, Maybe you've had something stolen from you at some point in your life, and you probably got upset. But why? Uh, When I was a teenager, I worked hard, and I saved money, and I bought a mountain bike, which was eventually stolen outside of Caledonia State Park's pool. I was upset. Uh, Why? It was my bike. That's why I was upset. Years ago, Christina visited a friend in Fairfax, Virginia, and while preparing to leave Fairfax, she left her car windows down uh, and came out from the house, and her CD case was gone. She was upset. Why? It was her CD case. Now, mountain bikes and CDs, those are small ticket items. In uh, 1990, at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, two police officers buzzed the door, and they said they heard a disturbance in the museum courtyard, and so the guards let them in. The police handcuffed the guards. One of the police had a wax mustache. Hmm, there's something fishy about this. Well, they were robbers, and over the course of 81 minutes, they robbed the museum and made off with 13 works of art, including Rembrandt's, Degas and one of 34 known Vermeers, among other valuable art pieces, together valuing around $500 million. It's the most valuable theft of private property recorded in history. And despite the FBI attempts to solve this case, none of the art has been found. And no one has been uh, prosecuted, arrested, or anything. So uh, if you go to the museum in Boston today, you'll see empty frames still hanging there. Uh, So, just in case any of you have taken the art, I I kindly ask that you return it. There's a lot of people who would like to see that. Now, why is that upsetting, at least to those uh, affiliated with the museum, maybe the art director or the art enthusiast? Because the art belonged to the museum. Theft is upsetting because selfish people take things that don't belong to them. Does the gospel belong to man? Well, in one sense, you could say yes. Certainly, it is for man, believed by man, benefits man. But the gospel is not man's gospel. It didn't originate with man. It wasn't conceived or achieved by man. And man isn't the center of it. It's God's gospel. God conceived it. God achieved it. God is the center of it. And God gives it all for his glory. It's God's gospel. He doesn't like it when people steal it, kind of like boosting cars and chop shops. They steal the gospel, remodel it, and use it for their own selfish purposes. God hates that. Why? It's his gospel. So here's my simple point. It's not man's gospel. It's God's gospel. Therefore, all glory goes to God in it and because of it. My outline is really simple this morning. Number one, the definition of the gospel. Number two, the derivation of the gospel. Number three, the dominance of the gospel. Number four, the distribution of the gospel. And number five, the doxology of the gospel. Number one, the definition of the gospel. Now, definitions are important. If I told you that I treated my family to to some pizza, breadsticks, and some Coke, you'd say, great. But did I mean the soft drink or the narcotic? See, the definition of Coke is the difference between, oh, that's wonderful, and our pastor's going to jail. All right? Definitions are important. In Galatians, 
Paul wrote a lot about the gospel, so we should know what he meant by gospel. Otherwise, we might be the chop shop. Galatians gives a pretty comprehensive definition of gospel, but Paul has already given us some vital gospel elements in verses 1 through 10. In verse 1, the gospel is God the Father raising Jesus the Messiah from the dead. In verse 3, the gospel is grace and peace that come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is God's unmerited favor and peace in both reconciliation with God and inner peace of the soul. God is the source, not merit or good works. The gospel is also the supremacy of Jesus Christ as Lord. In verse 4, the gospel is Jesus Christ, the Lord, giving himself and dying for the sins of his people. So the gospel includes the sinfulness of humanity and their need of forgiveness. And Jesus Christ as substitutionary atonement and ransom for his people. In verse 4, the gospel is deliverance from evil and sin through the death of Christ, which was according to God's will. So the gospel is God's sovereign purpose and plan to save and sanctify his people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 5, the gospel is God's eternal glory. In verse 6, the gospel is God's effectual and salvific call, which actually saves all his people in the grace of Christ. In verse 7, the gospel is exclusive. There is only one gospel. In verses 8 and 9, the gospel is the message preached by the apostles. And in verse 10, the gospel entails belonging to Christ as slave. Paul goes on to expand that. However, a lot of gospel is right there at the beginning of the letter. Obviously, Paul was not talking about salvation by works of the law or human goodness but about salvation by God's saving grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, study ahead in Galatians. You know, read ahead. It will help you as we move through this series to better define what Paul was talking about. You need the whole picture of the book to know. So read ahead. um, And make sure that you have the soft drink gospel and not the narcotic gospel. Okay? Coke's old slogan. You remember what it was? It's the real thing. So make sure that you have the real gospel. Number two, the derivation of the gospel. Why does Paul share details about himself? And I was particularly puzzled in reading this as to why Paul would include verse 22. He was unknown to the churches of Judea. Okay. Uh, And then I read a study note that turned the light on for me, and it said this. Paul defends himself against his opponent's charge that he is in rebellion against the Jerusalem apostles who gave him his authority in the first place, or that his gospel is at odds with theirs, end of quote. So you had Peter, Andrew, James, John, Thomas, the rest preaching in Jerusalem, in Judea, and the attack against Paul was like this, the real apostles preached the gospel to Paul and commissioned him only to have Paul twist the gospel and the authority that they gave him. You see the false teacher's accusation, but you see Paul received the gospel directly from Christ and was preaching prior 
to meeting the other apostles in Jerusalem. Paul didn't receive the gospel from the apostles or from any man, for that matter. Well, who cares? Paul's authority and commission to preach was divine, not human. It matters. So Paul's personal info is meant to confirm that he was preaching the one true gospel of Jesus Christ and that it was the Judaizers, the false teachers in Galatia, that preached a false gospel. They were distorting the gospel and adding works of the law to grace. Paul said in verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Now first, notice Paul called them Adelphoi, or brothers, or brethren. Adelphoi is masculine plural. So this is for the men, but here Adelphoi refers more generally to brothers and sisters, as it sometimes does in certain texts, brothers and sisters. Paul addressed the Galatians as brothers and sisters in Christ who happened to be in serious sin and error. He he didn't treat them as outsiders or as apostates or as reprobates. He treated them as members of God's family, but members of God's family that were caught in error. They were wrong. They were deserting the true gospel, turning their backs on God. And he was exasperated. His words were strong. But Paul showed affection and treated them according to their identity in Christ even as they were distracted by another gospel, a different gospel. Second, Paul wanted the Galatians to know that the gospel he first preached to them was different than the false gospel they were turning to. His gospel was God's gospel. The the Greek is literally not according to man. Man didn't come up with the gospel. Nor was man entitled to define the gospel or alter the gospel in any way. The the gospel is not some fairy tale invented by human beings uh, because they they feel weak and destitute and, and lost and they need some crutch to get them through this hard life. That's not it. No, the gospel belongs to God who graciously gives it to man. Man has no right to alter it. Paul added, verse 12, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's simple then. Paul didn't receive the gospel by ordinary means. Through through preaching of the gospel. That's not how he got it. He was unique. Paul saw in the person, in person rather, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. He saw in person concrete evidence of the gospel. It was divine revelation. It wasn't a mere man or a preacher or a guru or a council or a mission organization that gave Paul the gospel, taught Paul the gospel, or even commissioned Paul to preach the gospel. It was Jesus Christ the Lord himself to attack Paul's gospel was to attack the gospel Christ gave directly to Paul. The Greek word is apokalupsis, from where we get the word apocalypse. It refers to the disclosure of something that was previously unknown. I didn't know about that. 
Now I do. It's been revealed to me, that, that type of thing. Paul didn't know the gospel. In fact, no one knew the gospel until God revealed it to them. God revealed the gospel to Paul in Christ, and that's important because uh, Paul's argument is important to Paul's argument in the whole thing of Galatians against the false preachers who were attacking his authority. When Paul refuted the counterfeit gospel of the false teachers, when he refuted, get this now, this is what he was refuting, justification by grace and works of the law. Well, he did so on the basis of divine authority. As an apostle who had received direct revelation from the crucified and risen Lord, he wasn't distorting it. And his version was the same version that the apostles in Jerusalem, those who were with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. It was the same gospel. In fact, the the gospels eventually came to respect Paul's ministry and to uh, consider him an apostle. That's the whole thing with apostleship. It was Jesus who chose the apostles taught and trained the apostles and commissioned the apostles not only to preach his gospel, but to protect its integrity. Now, if you know Paul's story, if you know Acts 9, you know that a man named Ananias was sent by God to Paul so that Paul would regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ah, so did Paul receive then the gospel from man, from Ananias, Paul said in verse 16, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood or with anyone. Well, what about Ananias? Well, we have to read closely. And as I was reading it, this is not in the notes, it just, it dawned on me. I learned something new that I didn't catch during my study. Ananias referred to him as brother. Paul was saved beforehand by the revelation of Christ. Just hit me. Brother, why did he use that term? In Acts 9, Jesus, when you read that, is the one acting. He's the one doing. And Ananias was being divinely directed and used by Christ. So back to Galatians now, verses 15 and 16 weigh in on this. Listen very closely. This is so precious. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. God elected Paul, called Paul, and with pleasure revealed Christ to Paul. It wasn't like Ananias came to Paul so that Paul could ask him, you know, what's all this gospel business about? Could you fill me in on this? Hey, I need a couple pointers about all of this. No, the gospel content Conviction and commission came from Christ alone. Now, we have a crisis in American Christianity. The crisis is that many professing Christians have put themselves at the center of the gospel. The distorted gospel of American evangelicalism is man's gospel. It's a man-centered gospel, a man-focused gospel. A man is essentially good and righteous gospel. Just listen to much present-day preaching and read Christian bestsellers and you hear a lot about yourself. But Paul preached 
The glory and beauty and supremacy and sovereignty and ability and centrality of God and His supernatural grace. The true gospel derives from God and it tells what God has done in salvation, not what man has done. And please listen, my dear friends, if the gospel that you cherish even hints at something that you have done to contribute to your salvation, you likely have a different gospel. Here are two compelling paragraphs from Dr. Philip Riken. They're very clarifying. I share them with you because I think they're helpful. Riken wrote this. Not surprisingly, the religions that human beings invent always end up glorifying human beings. There is some law to keep, some teaching to follow, some ritual to perform, some penance to endure, or some state of consciousness to achieve that will bring salvation. One way or another, we can climb to heaven and reach God. Pause there. That's what world religions say. Do you understand? They put man at the center and then they tell man to work his way to God. That's not good news. Dr. Riken continues, Christianity is different. What distinguishes it from other world religions is that it actually comes from God. The one true gospel is not man-made, which is why it gives all the glory to God. The good news of the cross and the empty tomb could come only from God because it is about what God has done to save us through Jesus Christ. It does not teach that we can reach up to heaven. It teaches that God has come down to earth. In Christ, God has entered human history and the human heart. End of quote. Riken nailed it. Nailed it. The initiative is entirely God's. The gospel is entirely God's. The gospel that we Christians, we true Christians, cherish so deeply is not man's gospel. It's not a fictional script that we've written to make sense of our broken lives, but is powerful truth and grace from God to us. God condescended in human flesh to achieve what we could not achieve for ourselves so that we would give Him the glory and reserve none of the glory for ourselves. The reason, this is the great reason we sing to God be the glory. Why would anyone want the burdensome and impossible gospel of works righteousness and self-righteousness when we have the infinitely valuable gospel of God's glory and grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Every other so-called gospel is no gospel at all, and it is oppressive, burdensome, stressful, depressing, hopeless, and flat-out exhausting because it makes you work for what you cannot achieve. That's not good news. False gospels make good works a contributing factor to salvation, but the gospel makes good works the inevitable fruit of salvation. There is a huge difference. Number three, I love this point, the dominance of the gospel. Dominance, supremacy, ascendancy, power. These are impressive words, friends. We're drawn to dominance. 
The Hennessy Venom F5 is the fastest production car on the market. It has 1,600 horsepower. 7.4 liters. Twin-turbo V8 engine, and it goes 301 miles per hour. You can buy that and drive it off the lot if you have $1.6 million base price. That's dominance. All right, from 1991 to 1998, I was playing hoops during that time. Michael Jordan led the Chicago Bulls to six NBA championships. The year that, that, that uh, the Bulls didn't win a championship in that stretch, Jordan was in retirement. There you have it. In those six championship years, their winning percentage was 80.5%. None of the NBA finals went to game seven. That's dominance. The Beatles are considered by many to be the greatest rock band of all time. Their first album, mind you, topped the UK's charts for 30 weeks. 11 of their first 12 albums reached number one on national charts. They won 10 Grammys. Their Sgt. Pepper album was Rolling Stone's 2015 greatest album of all time. They're the greatest selling band of history, selling more than a billion units globally. That's dominance. We're attracted to dominance. Preeminently beautiful and powerful things are interesting. Dominance pulls us in. We want to be blown away by something, blown away by dominance. Well, consider the dominance of the gospel in two ways. Number one, the gospel dominates sin and self-righteousness. Nothing else can do that. Paul, he was dominating in Judaism. He said in verses 13 and 14, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He was serious about religion. Paul was smart, skilled, and driven. He was moving up among the religious ranks. He was beyond many of his peers. He loved Jewish traditions. He was consumed with self-righteousness. Paul was no friend of the gospel. He violently sought to destroy those who loved the gospel. But look at the little phrase in verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Something changed Paul. What? Look at verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, he saw Christ in all of his glory. I read that Pharisees, they considered themselves set apart by keeping God's law. Law-keeping set them apart. What did Paul, the former self-righteous Pharisee, say? Not that law-keeping set him apart. God had set him apart from the womb. That's not self-righteousness. That's sovereign election. And God's election of Paul had nothing to do with Paul's righteousness or choice. God chose Paul. God chose Paul before he did anything. And even though Paul adamantly opposed the gospel for many years of his life, God's dominating gospel overpowered his heart. His godless desires transformed him, gave him a new heart, gave him new desires. 
and emblazoned him to preach the gospel until he died for it. That's dominance. Paul said that God called him by his grace. Do you know what that is? That's God's dominating and gracious, effectual call. Please understand what this means. Grace overpowers human sinful willpower and brings lost sinners to himself. That's dominance. Paul could not be saved by his pharisaical works of the law and legalistic lifestyle. I think I'll just be a moral person. No, Paul said. That could not save him. Couldn't save anybody. He said in Philippians that his religious achievement was rubbish, dung, trash. It was sovereign and effectual grace alone that brought him to Christ. In verse 16, it was God who was pleased to reveal Jesus Christ to Paul. Paul was saved because God took initiative with him, sought after him, pursued him, came to him, and with dominant and merciful and loving power, conquered Paul's sin and misery and redirected his life forever. Man's gospel can't do that. Only God's gospel can. The choice is God's. The call is God's. The grace is God's. The pleasure is God's. The revelation is God's. All of salvation must be attributed to God, the source of it. Number two, the gospel dominates all false gospels. It never loses. Why was God's sovereign election, effectual calling, and revelation of Christ to Paul so important in Paul's argument against the false teachers? Because Paul preached justification by grace alone. Not justification by grace plus works. And God's sovereign election, effectual calling, and revelation of Christ secured Paul's salvation and gospel ministry and through him changed the lives of countless Gentiles. Look at verse 16. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. It was the domination of the gospel in Paul's life that led to the domination of the gospel over false gospels and the domination that led to spiritual freedom for the Gentiles. In verses 16 through 19, Paul recounted the order of things. He was supernaturally converted by a revelation of Jesus Christ after which he consulted with no human being. He didn't immediately go to Jerusalem to the apostles. He preached in Damascus. He headed to Arabia to the east. He went back to Damascus. The Jews plotted to kill him because of his preaching. He preached the gospel for years. Then, only after three years, did he visit Jerusalem. And even then, not all the apostles met him, nor did they commission him. Uh, The Acts passage is a little tricky there to understand. He visited with only Peter and James, who became his acquaintances, which I'm sure was an incredible visit with them, lots of amazing discussion, but not a visit to give Paul the gospel. He already had the gospel. It was rather a visit to hear perhaps more details about the life and ministry of Jesus on earth. Verse 20 is significant. Paul swore an oath. He swore an oath. 
It was a weighty matter. He swore an oath to further sanction that the gospel was God's gospel, not man's, not his. Before God, I do not lie. As God is my witness, I'm not telling a lie to you. I'm telling you the truth. That's what he's saying. Paul went to Syria and Cilicia to preach the gospel. Even then, he was unknown to the churches of Judea. All that Paul was writing was substantiating his apostolic version of the gospel over and above the different gospel of grace plus works of the false teachers in Galatia. Verse 23 is a link in the chain of the gospel's dominance. The, The local churches in Judea, they hadn't met Paul, but here's what they were hearing. They were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's dominance. The gospel overpowered Paul's old man and made him a new man from a violent persecutor of the church to a church planter and eventually a martyr. This is what God's grace does in wicked sinners like you and me. It changes them. It gives them a new heart, new desires, and it gives them a new life. That's dominance that man-made gospels don't have. Saints, the true gospel dominates any other gospel, and not that there is any other. There is just one. All the others are false. The spectacular news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and justification before God found in Christ alone is so superior and glorious and God-inspired that it makes all other man-made and man-centered gospels and religions look silly. Fairy tales. A waste. Four. The distribution of the gospel. Do you understand that God's sovereign election and choice in salvation is the reason that the gospel came to us, the Gentiles? Do you understand that? Why you ever heard is because God decreed it and elected to send people like Paul to be killed for it? Apart from God's sovereign and electing grace and choice, we would never have heard the gospel. Paul's conversion and calling described in verses 15 and 16 sound a lot like the prophet Jeremiah's conversion and calling described in Jeremiah 1, verses 4 and 5, which says this, listen. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Isn't that a cool connection? Many Christians believe that God's election and choice to save is based on God's foreknowledge that that sinner would eventually choose him. Now, there are various problems with that interpretation, but one huge big one is this. That's not what Scripture says. I mean, that that should pretty much solve it. God's foreknowledge is not simply his awareness of something before it happens, but is his choice and intimate relationship with the person. It's intimate. 
Before that person existed, God formed Jeremiah. You have to look at the text here in Jeremiah. God formed Jeremiah, but before he did, God knew him. He didn't even exist. How do you make sense of that? God knew him and chose him before he was born. God consecrated him. He set him apart for gospel purposes before he was born. God appointed him a prophet to the nations before he was born. None of that was Jeremiah's doing or because Jeremiah would eventually choose God. God's election of Jeremiah, and we'll throw in Paul, was clearly based on God's freely given love and eternal plan to them. This is what God has done throughout redemptive history. When mankind was dead in sin with absolutely no hope, God came and through the gospel redeemed sinners and gave them a new life to be trophies of what? To be trophies of His grace. Look at the transformation in them. Glory be to God. That's the idea. That's the idea not trophies of a good decision they made or a straight aisle that they walked. Consider grace, folks. How improper it would be in the face of God's sovereign grace to emphasize, I chose God. Or my act of faith or works of the law make me acceptable to God. Really? Is that where we want to place the emphasis In this glorious redemptive story, no, that gospel does not give glory to God. It was the eternal and gracious plan of God to save by grace through faith given as a gift. Man's choice contributing absolutely nothing because it's God's gospel. Lastly, number five, the doxology of the gospel. This just confirms it. When the churches of Judea heard that Paul was no longer persecuting the church, was no longer trying to destroy the Christian faith, but was now preaching the Christian faith, what did they do? Verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. Why'd they do that? Because they knew it was God's gospel, not man's gospel. Man contributes nothing to the radical transformation that God's grace alone performs. You you don't do the law to be transformed. You don't cut off a little piece of skin to be transformed. You don't follow a few rituals or ceremonies to be transformed. You are transformed when God's grace alone transforms you through faith alone in Christ alone given to you as a gift from God. Then you do good works. The churches of Judea, they knew the power of God's transforming grace because they had been themselves transformed by it. And that is why their their Christian instinct was to glorify God because only God could transform someone like Paul. Dear brothers and sisters, you have been radically transformed by God. Is your instinct then to think, my, how wise I was to figure out the gospel. My, how much smarter I am to believe the gospel than those other dumb sinners who just can't seem to get it. My, how I am so glad that I decided to follow Jesus. Is that how you think? 
Or are you so humbled by the gospel and so grateful for God's grace that you give glory to God alone? Because when you were blind, deaf, enslaved, and dead, God came and through the gospel made you see, hear, free, and alive. What credit could you possibly take for yourself? You were a sinner, like Paul, and God came and saved you. Saints, give glory to God that he saved a wretched sinner like you and me. Give glory to God that he elected you, called you to himself, and revealed his glorious son to you through gospel preaching. Give glory to God that his gospel dominated your stubborn, inflexible, cold, hostile, and hell-bound heart and brought you close to him to enjoy his love and to live for him forever where the greatest thing you want to do now because of sovereign grace is live for your King and Savior and Lord Jesus. Where did Paul give the glory? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. It's God's gospel. So give glory to God. Be grateful for God. Serve God because of transforming grace. Now, Saints, when you get what I'm saying, if the Holy Spirit is putting some things together here in your mind, you are much better positioned. He's putting you in a better position to be humble, worshipful, joyful, and ever so grateful for grace. When you realize that God knew you before you were born set you apart before you were born, called you by his saving grace, and that God was pleased to reveal his son to even you through gospel preaching. He brought it for you clearly, and you heard and you responded, not because you were so great, not because you did something, but because he loves you. He wanted you to hear. He wanted to change you, and so he did. And you know what he had to do in order to do that? Overpower your will, which hated him. That's what grace does. The gospel produces gratitude and worship and joy. So let me ask, the gospel that you believe, is it a gospel from man or is it God's gospel? Do you believe God's gospel? Have you been transformed by God's gospel? Oh, that your greatest joy and power in life would be God's gospel. Let people say about you, dear Christian, can you believe it? She used to have no interest in spiritual things. Something just snapped inside this woman. She's on a mission for Christ. He's totally different. I never saw it coming. All of a sudden, he's just different. I want what he has. I'll ask him for what he has. If you simply try to be a moral person, I'm just going to get this right today. Maybe God will accept my weak and pathetic attempt today. 
you know, not only will you have no power over your flesh by trusting yourself, but people are going to see right through you and they're going to see your pride and self-righteousness and they're going to know that you are all about you. It's not that hard to spot. Listen to what people say. People will give glory to God for your life when they see the gospel transforming you only as God's gospel can. So, trust Christ with all of your heart and walk by the Spirit so that you are a reason for others to give glory to God. Trust Christ. Father, we are trophies of your grace. Jonathan is exceedingly bad. Jonathan has no power in and of himself to do anything good. And such is the case with everyone else here. God, maybe some haven't admitted that yet. They still are hanging on to the thought that maybe they're good a little bit. So I pray that you will very kindly, very gently, but very forcefully, with your clear gospel, explode their irrational thinking and show them how horrible and miserable they are apart from you. Would you do that very kindly for someone today? Show them they're a miserable wretch and there is no hope for them. And then show them the glorious beauty of Christ and his righteousness in the gospel. Show them their only hope to be saved is receiving from you grace and the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Show them there is nothing good in them. They need an alien righteousness, a gift of righteousness that comes by faith alone, in Christ alone. Transform someone's theology this morning. Transform someone's heart. God, we are such a weak people that those of us who know Christ, we struggle. We think, boy, am I really saved? We're so weak and frail. We struggle with the assurance of salvation. So I pray, God, that you will direct our eyes to Christ. He is our assurance. It is because we belong to him with body and soul, both in life and in death. It is because of our faithful Savior. It is you who preserve us. It is you who assure us. It is your Holy Spirit in us that says you're saved and watch what I produce in you. And I pray that the dear one here this morning that is struggling with the assurance of salvation can look to Christ and the cross to see what he accomplished for them, that it was his initiative that reached out to them and that if he wants them saved, they will be saved forever. And if he wants them to produce good works, which he does, he will beautifully produce it in them by his spirit and by his grace. Assure your people today of the gospel, that it is theirs by faith alone, in Christ alone. They don't have to work for it. And then show them, God, that when they are transformed by radical grace, the good works absolutely, inevitably will follow. It's just what you do in your people. Not to earn, but because it's been earned by the merits of Christ. Oh God, comfort your people. Give joy to your people. Give peace to your people. Give assurance to your people in the gospel. And those who don't trust in you, show them, show them the horror 
of an eternity that is promised them under your judgment and your wrath and your swift justice. There will be no relief from hell. And I pray that those who don't know you would run to the cross to find themselves forgiven. Run to the cross to find their sins paid for. Run to the cross to find a ransom that has ransomed them. God, we want people to know Christ and we want people to know the real gospel. So do it for your glory that we may praise you at the radical and transforming grace that we see in others and in ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.